Thank you, Gary. It is, uh, it is an important thing, and, and uh, normally we do that on the first uh, Sunday of the month, and true confessions, I forgot last week when I was putting things together. We haven't done this in a while. It's weird for us to, to be together, and so um, we love it. It's great, but sometimes we miss things, and we were inclined to just hold off until next month. You know, we, we missed it, so we were going to skip it. But since God has ordained for us to be in Acts chapter 14 today as it is, and we're going to talk about uh, Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey and wrapping that up as they complete this mission, it seemed appropriate for us to go ahead and talk about that today. So I would invite you at this time, if you have not already, to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. I'll be reading for you the entire text of this chapter. Beginning with verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe into the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra there was a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas, and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, He let all nations go their own way, yet He has not left Himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, He got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the gospel in that city and won won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, as we open your word today, may our hearts be receptive. Father, make us ripe for the learning you have for us. Protect us from human opinion. Make us diligent like the Bereans to check everything against your word. Father, speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue. Father, I pray for all of us who are are hearing today. Father, I pray for all of us whom the devil is trying to distract. I thank you for our tech team, hardworking, diligently trying to make sure that this goes well. I pray for the technology right now, Father, that you, would, that you would remove the obstacles, that you would remove the difficulties so that we could focus our attention on you. I want to thank you specifically for, for Dennis and Amanda and Brad and the work that they are doing so that we can together, both here in this room and those who are joining us online, study your word and be united But Father, no matter what the enemy tries to do to distract, discourage, or deceive us, we choose to focus our attention on you. So Father, I pray that you would give us clarity of mind and perseverance. More than anything else, Father, we want Jesus. We want to know you. We want to know you so clearly, so well, that the reality of the gospel is ever in our minds. That this is not in our heads just some religion, some philosophy that we adhere to or that we strive for, but rather, Lord, that this would be clear for us as the reality of the universe. In all things today, Lord, we pray that you would receive glory and honor from our songs, from our study from our encouragement for one another, from our response in action to what you tell us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name for your glory and honor. Amen. Sometimes the devil works harder than others to get get us distracted. As we are opening Acts 14, and as we are taking a look at, at this completed mission as Paul finishes the work this work he'll go on more missionary journeys he'll do more things in fact the rest of this book focuses on how God in his Holy Spirit moves through Paul and establishes churches throughout the known world even into Europe and at that time as he's doing that he is in the exact same situation that you and I are in today. We have a job. Just as he did. Sometimes we have startling things that happen to us. And just as Paul and Barnabas and the early church, you and I are in the midst of a world that is dying. More than that, we are surrounded by individuals created in the image of God who are dead already. Physically alive, yes, but spiritually dead in sin. And God has given us the task, those who have been reconciled to God, of reconciling others, taking the ministry of reconciliation that He has given to us so that the world, lost, dead in sin, apart from God, facing condemnation, may be saved, not by us, not of our hands, but by the Spirit of God. And we have been tasked to be His ambassadors. Now, many of you can remember that most loathsome of things back in school, the group project. I know Aaron loves those. It was great, right? Why is it that people tend to hate group projects? Now, some people love them because you get to socialize, you get to be with other people rather than doing work yourself. But you may notice that those who 
tend to be achievers really hate group projects. Why? Because very often in school, maybe most of the time, one or two people carry the load and do the work while the others goof off and watch. And everybody gets the same grade. Maybe you've been in a workplace that was like that. Where the person next to you, getting paid the same as you, with the same job description as you, was happy to watch you doing all the work. If you've been in that situation, you know that not only is it not pleasant, it drags down the team. I'm not talking about morale, I'm talking about productivity. No team can be effective with 75% of the team participating. There's 25% not getting it done. If you have 100% participating, you can get more accomplished. How much more if the 80-20 rule is true, where 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people? We know from observation that that is the reality in most workplaces, in most organizations, even in most churches. Now, as I preach this text today, if you've been here with us, you know uh, I don't jump on topics because we need to talk about a topic. We're going to preach through the Word. We're going to preach the Word as it's laid out for us in the text. But God gives us topics as we go through it. And as we see this missionary journey being the focal point, we recognize that God is doing something in this story, in this passage, that relates to us. Now Luke, as he writes this account, isn't writing to us here in Three Oaks in 2020. He's not writing this so that you and I can hear it and say, oh man, I better support those missionaries. You know, Suzanne's you know, needing some more support. Shrocks are needing some more support. Shamanics are always needing funds to be able to provide uh, needs for people. You know, better preach that text. That's not how this works. Luke wrote this for an audience in the first century about historical events that took place in the growth and the birth and growth of the church as the Holy Spirit moved. Today, there are principles that we can see realities that are bigger than that moment that apply to us today. I'm already over time and I've barely even gotten started, so I want to make sure that I try to stay on track here. Our core reality for today is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. I'm going to read it for you twice. It's up on the screen. It's in front of you on the program. I want you to be able to know what it is. The local church has a global mission and every member has a role in it. The local church has a global mission and every member has a role in it. As we walk through this, you're going to see this unfold. As, the, as we walk through the text that we just read, you'll notice some basic foundations. So I'm going to get you writing right out of the gate here. We're going to look at these foundations. First, we see that people are already doomed and only Jesus can save them. People are already doomed and only Jesus can save them. Now, where do you get that from the text? Well, that one actually isn't from this passage. But it's a foundation that underlies what's going on here. Jesus in John chapter 3, in a, a, a section that you're very familiar with, said, For God so loved the world that He what? He gave His only Son, His only begotten Son, His unique, one-of-a-kind only Son, so that whoever does what? Talk to me. I know there's only a few of you, but i got to hear some voices believes in Him, trusts in Him, hangs all their hope in Him. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He goes on to say that the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And right after that, he points out a very important truth that makes all of the rest of that really really important he points out a truth that is exactly what drives the early church in their missions he who does not believe 
John 3.18, stands condemned already because he didn't, doesn't believe in the one and only Son. All have sinned, Paul writes in Romans 3.23, long after this event. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We lack God's glory. That's why even law-keeping can't save us, because even if we are in some way justified by keeping the law, which we can't do because we're not good enough for that, we still, in our own strength, exist in a dead state because of sin. Therefore, even law-keeping still leaves us lifeless, lacking God's glory. We need the life-giver to reach into us and give us life. People are already doomed and only Jesus can save them. He alone gives life. Next foundation we see, Jesus operates through His church. Jesus operates through His church. We see that throughout the text here. People are already doomed and only Jesus can save them. Jesus operates through His church. Next notice, the church is manifested in local, structured, committed communities. The church, big C, capital C, universal church, the body of Christ, all believers in Christ, all disciples worldwide throughout time, throughout the church age, we as a body are manifested locally. We are manifested in communities of faith with a biblical structure committed to one another, gathered locally. Notice also, every disciple of Christ is responsible for the church's growth in depth and breadth. Every disciple of Christ is responsible for the church's growth in depth and breadth. What does that mean? It means that each one of us if we are a part of the body of Christ, are responsible to get deep roots for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. We build up one another. That's a regular theme of the New Testament. Building up one another, encouraging one another, guiding one another into spiritual maturity. I have to take responsibility for my own deep roots. I also have to take responsibility for the deep roots of those that I love particularly those who are under my care. Parents, that's your big job for your children. Get them to the cross. Teach them about the truth. You can't make choices for them, but give them a reason to believe. And teach them who God is. But we're also responsible for the church's growth in breadth. What does that mean? We need to get broader wider in other words we need to take people who are outside the church outside the body of christ the lost those who don't know christ we're not talking about building this local church finding somebody who goes to another church and dragging them over so they go to our church so we get more people in our seats than they have in their seats that is the most unchristian unbiblical idea i can think of unless of course that church is teaching falsehood that's another story entirely but when we are talking about growing the church, church in its breadth, we're talking about getting deep and getting wide. We need to reach more people because every person who is in here hearing the gospel is one more that isn't out there not hearing the gospel. But coming to the church doesn't make you part of the church. We've said it before, haven't we? Going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. In the same way, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. But the gospel is being taught here. The believers are gathered here. What we need is to bring people into the family so that they go from unbelievers to believers, from lost to found, from dead to alive. That's growing the breadth of the church. We need to be deep and wide. People are already doomed. Only Jesus can save them. Jesus operates through His church. The church is manifested in local, structured, committed communities. Every disciple of Christ is responsible for the church's growth in depth and breadth. Last foundation that we'll see here undergirding chapter 14. Every member of the church is accountable for the work of the church 
to the rest of the church. Every member of the church is accountable for the work of the church to the rest of the church. Short form, we're in this together. We're a team. It doesn't matter whether your job is throwing touchdown passes or blocking big bag defensive linemen to protect the guy throwing touchdown passes. We're all on the same team. We all have the same goal. We are trying to move the ball across a goal line. You now understand the most important thing about football. You didn't know you were getting that bonus today, did you? Football is about taking a ball, moving it across a designated goal line, and keeping the other guy from doing the same. You are now super educated in football. Everything else is details. The same is true for us. We have a mission. And every single one of us has a role in that mission. If we fail to do our part, that means somebody else either has to pick up our share, our load, or people die and go to hell. Does that seem melodramatic? I'm not trying to to oversell or be a melodramatic. I have to say, I could not possibly oversell this reality. The best I can do in the most demonstrative way that I could do it would still be underselling the truth that if you and I, each one, and all of us together, don't do what we need to do in the mission, people literally go to hell forever. No pressure or anything. But we as the church need to be engaged. All right. That's the foundation. Why do I call that the foundation? Those things are what make chapter 14 go. You'll see them show up in the principles we'll look at in just a moment. But as you see chapter 14, this is in the back, maybe even in the front of the mind of Paul and Barnabas, the leaders in Antioch, the people that they are setting as elders as you're going through here. Everything that you see here rests on the foundation of these things that we just discussed. The local church has a global mission and every member has a role in it. How do we know it's a local church? Well, it starts in Antioch. started in Jerusalem. They come down. They start this local gathering of believers in Antioch. Are they connected to the church at Jerusalem? Of course they are. All believers everywhere. We're all one body. We have, uh, we're all members of one body. One head, Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. But we can't gather with everybody all at once. So they have a gathering of committed followers of Christ together at Antioch. And from Antioch, this local church, they recognize that there are people all around who don't know Jesus. And they're living and they're dying apart from God, the life giver. And they stand condemned already because there is only one way to life. So they recognize when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, he wasn't kidding. He was talking to them. And these people gathered at Antioch were not personally, most of them, not personally with Jesus when he said it. So he wasn't saying it just to the small group gathered with him. He was saying it to them, through them, to all of us. Because people are dying all around the world without Christ, we must take the good news all around the world to the people who are dying without Christ. And yes, it starts in your neighborhood. It starts in your family. But it doesn't end there. If you are excited because you led someone to Christ, you you shared the gospel with them, maybe you had the privilege of having them respond and you got to actually talk them through and introduce them to your Lord. That's a fantastic feeling. Let that be a a motivator for you. Because if you think that you're done, then you've forgotten how many people there are in the world. Almost 7 billion people. One Savior. One way, one truth, one life. I guess we better be serious. Now, 
as we walk through this, we're going to see these principles uh, play out uh, at, at just going through it, and we'll see some application as we go with these principles. And then uh, when we get to the end here, I'm going to go as fast as I can. I know there are uh, 10 points, that's uh, you know about five more than I would usually have, but we're going to try to go as quickly as we can. You know me, so buckle up. We're going to stay a while. First principle that we see, missionary support is a spiritual ministry. Missionary support is a spiritual ministry. All right? So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, what we see prior to chapter 14 is that the church sends Paul and Barnabas out. Right? So they, uh, they're gathered there at Antioch. Um, we're looking at uh, the beginning of chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, that's the guy that put John the Baptist to death and presided over the trial of Christ, and Saul. Now we call him Paul. While they were worshiping, don't, don't miss this, while they were worshiping, ministering to the Lord is another way of translating that, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, seeking God diligently, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So because they're seeking God, they're hearing God, and they want to make sure that they're getting it right so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. They fasted and prayed more to make sure that they're all in one accord in understanding what the Lord is telling them to do. And they send out Barnabas, who may be the, the prominent leader in Antioch, and Saul, who will become a prominent leader, but probably at this point is still not. And they send them out, even though that will mean loss for Antioch you're sending out some of your top leaders that means you're down a little right you're short some churches get bothered when you think about sending people out into the mission field or sending them out to other churches because oh we'll miss you yeah we will see ya not to be calloused but there's a job to do we can't do the job while we're sitting at home there's a job to do. But notice, some of them do stay in Antioch. Some of them are sitting at home, but not passively. They're sending them out. They do this with worship, prayer, and fasting. We talked about that a little bit last week. I don't want to you know, chew the same food twice, but as we're going through this, understand that this diligent seeking of God with fasting and prayer is related to their sending and their supporting. One thing we've seen from the very beginning of Acts to now is they put their money where their mouth is. When they believe, they back it up with action that generally involves giving, sacrificing of themselves. So much so that at a, at a certain point in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, we see that they had no poor people among them, no poor people in the church. There are always poor people in the world, no poor people in the church, because everybody said, you know what, I would rather have you have what used to be my stuff than me have what I used to consider my stuff, because I need to see all of us walking together as brothers and sisters. They saw the church the same way you and I might see our household at home. I am not going to feed one child and starve another. It's all for all of us to grow and develop and flourish. That happens in the church. The same dynamic happens here as they send and support. Missionary support is a spiritual ministry. Second, lives are changed when God's Word is clearly proclaimed. Now we're in chapter 14. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jew Jewish synagogue. That's what they normally did. We'll see them continue that even after they shake the dust off their feet. That's where the Jews are gathered. They go and they connect the dots from the Old Testament to the New. Jesus is not a new religion. He's not, not some guru. He is the Messiah completing what God had been doing throughout the Old Testament. 
There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Now that's significant. They don't just speak. Luke, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, finds it significant to tell us that they spoke effectively. Now, does that mean they were dynamic speakers? According to what Paul tells us in his letters, it means exactly the opposite. Paul, over and over again, says, we didn't come to you with clever words. Yeah, you've heard these super apostles, those who are of a false gospel, who are not part of the church, who will come out and preach a gospel that sounds good. They've got a great program. Maybe they don't have tech problems and stuff. They're going to come out and they're going to they're give you a slick presentation but over and over again, he says, look, we just came at you with the simple truth of the gospel. We made ourselves fools for you. We made ourselves look small. We could have bragged about our education and, and, and pop, pumped ourselves up with our, our training. We didn't do that. We preach Christ and Him crucified. Lives are changed when the gospel is clearly proclaimed. Now these two are here preaching. I'm standing up in front of you doing what God's called me to do, to, to preach this way. But each one of us proclaims the gospel in regular conversations. Each one of us proclaims the gospel. We preach day to day in the people that we are invested in, in the circle of influence that God has given you. That's why our real-life wording of the New Testament call of the church is to reflect the reality of Christ through relationships. In those relationships, each one of us has a gospel to clearly proclaim. People are dead. Christ gives life. Come to Christ. Lives are changed when God's word is clearly proclaimed. Notice third, opposition to the gospel is inevitable. Pick up verse 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the Jews who refused to believe, now notice, they made a great number of believers of Jews and Greeks by proclaiming the gospel, but there were still some who didn't. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Opposition to the gospel is inevitable. Everywhere that we see the gospel preached in the New Testament, everywhere, we see opposition. Everywhere in our world where the gospel is preached, we find opposition. The devil is called the prince of this world. You know what he doesn't want? He doesn't want the true gospel preached. He's really happy if you preach a gospel that makes people feel good, but doesn't talk about hell and sin. The devil loves it when we preach a gospel that brings lots of people to church but doesn't get the church into a lot of people. He does not care if you come to church and you sit in a chair unchanged. What he cannot tolerate is dead people whom he owns, if you will, being changed to living souls redeemed by the blood of Christ who no longer are under his enslavement. The devil can't tolerate that. So wherever the gospel is preached, just as Jesus told us, there would always be persecution. There would always be opposition. <clears throat> opposition to the gospel is inevitable. Number four, conviction perseveres in the mission. Conviction perseveres in the mission. What is persevering? It's Bearing up underneath this load. Something is hard. I stick with it. My favorite preacher, Chuck Swindoll, used to call that stick to I'm going to bear up under it. I'm going to hold tight. I'm going to stay the course, even though it's hard. Take a look at the next verse in our passage. <clears throat> verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling, him to, by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. A uh, um, little side note. The fact that Luke is pointing out here 
that in this unique situation, God is enabling them to do signs and wonders is a pretty clear and obvious indicator that that's not the norm. It wasn't normal even then, even in the book of Acts, for them to do miraculous signs and wonders. They did it when God gave it to them to do. When God gave them the power because there was the purpose. They were always attesting miracles. It wasn't for the sake of just drawing a crowd. It wasn't for the sake of just doing a miracle. And it certainly wasn't for the sake of them gaining notoriety. It was to affirm the message in unique settings, which is why it's meaningful when Luke records these miracles. Because it wasn't normal. That wasn't the point. That was just a freebie for you. The point is, conviction perseveres in the mission. And what we see in the very first word of verse 3 tells us something. It doesn't say, but. It doesn't say, you know, they face this hardship, but they stick around anyway. It says they face this hardship, so they stay. Because of this opposition, because the the antagonistic, if if I can use that term, unbelieving Jews, are stirring up the Gentiles who might otherwise believe, but are being led astray, being blocked from the gospel. Because of that, not in spite of it, because of that, they stay longer. They speak more boldly. And God gives them the ability to do these attesting miracles. They were so convicted about the truth of the gospel that it did not matter what happened, and we'll see this throughout the rest of the passage, as we'll see it throughout the rest of the book of Acts, as we'll see throughout Paul's letters, as we'll see throughout uh, James and Peter, as we see throughout Revelation, as we look at all of what's left of the Bible, we see that those who believe, not religious folks, those who believe in the reality of, of Christ as expressed in the scriptures that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things the sustainer of all things the redeemer of those who believe he died in our place as the substitute to appease God's righteous wrath against our sin when you know that when you believe that you can't let it go and it doesn't matter what anybody does to try to stop it the government can ban it it doesn't matter The devil can come against you. It doesn't matter because you know that what you're preaching, what you're sharing, what you're ministering is bigger than all of that. Conviction perseveres in the mission. So they stick, they stay, they work, they strive to persuade. Number five, We saw that opposition to the gospel is inevitable. We see also that opposition to the gospel is relentless. It is relentless. Picking up with verse 4, the people of the city, they are are still dealing with Iconium here. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. Now again, when they say Jews here, we have to make sure that we're following our context clues and reading the English language. You don't need any special Greek training. They're talking about the unbelieving Jews, not Jews in general. There is no, zero anti-Semitism in the Bible. None. These are the people of God. The difference is those who are children of the promise by faith and those who bear the name wear the jersey but aren't on the team. Just like the church today. People of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. This opposition was inevitable, but they persevere through it. So they find out about it, verse 6, and they fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derby, or Lystra and Derby, to the, and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel, persevering in the mission. But notice what comes next. In Lystra, there sat a man, I'm sorry, let me jump down farther. Um, Let's go beyond this to verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city, speaking of Derby, we've gotten past the the miraculous uh, healing. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then 
I jumped ahead of myself here again. Forgive me as I've lost my place, but I will come back to it. Um, there we go, 19. You'd think I've never done this before, right? Verse 19, this is the point we want to see. Opposition to the gospel is relentless. They have gone through this healing of the lame man. They have been praised as if they were gods by the pagans who were there. They deflect that praise. Hey, what are you doing? Only God gets worship. You worship God. We're men like you. We're here to tell you the good news. And they struggle to keep them at bay because the people are so impressed, right? They're superheroes. They've got powers. We're going to worship them. They must be gods. They get them set straight, sort of. And then 19 happens. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Notice that perseverance. He goes back. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. 19 should stick with us. It isn't the people there in Lystra. It's the people still from Pisidian Antioch. Still from Iconium. They already left those places. You did what you wanted to do. You ran them out of town, not before God did what He wanted to do, because He's God. But they pursued them. It wasn't enough for them to stop preaching here in our town. We want to shut them down. We don't want them to preach anywhere. I'm sure that they were very tolerant people for anything else. That was the nature in all of this area and all of this culture they were tolerant of lots of things you could worship any god as long as you worshiped our gods too as long as you don't upset our apple cart now the jews didn't tolerate that although they seemed to find ways to tolerate the romans because they had power they didn't worship the roman gods but they they figured out ways to get along The Romans tolerated whatever. Just don't get in our way. Don't upset things. In our lives as well, people will be happy to tolerate any number of things in your life. They will support you in sinful things. Everybody just live and let live, right? To each his own. Tolerance matters. That's a whole other sermon. Love matters. Tolerance is shallow. Love is deep and it costs. But when you begin to preach the gospel, when you stick with this truth that there is only one way and there's nothing else, it's not enough for me to say, hey, it's okay, man, you believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. No, if I'm, if I'm opposed to the gospel, I have to stop you. We're seeing that right now in the United States in a way that we have not seen in my lifetime. Some of you are younger than me. Some of you are older than me. I don't think we've seen it in any of our lifetimes now where we've seen in the United States, other places all the time, the attacks against freedom of religion. We don't care. If we are Christ followers and we recognize the reality of who He is, that Jesus Christ, the revelation of truth in the Scripture, is ultimate truth, then it doesn't matter what our Constitution says. You could take away the First Amendment today. It does not change my course one bit. I follow Christ. You could relocate me to North Korea does not change my course one bit. Might change the venue a little bit. I follow Christ. Opposition to the gospel is relentless, but it does not change the truth of the gospel. It does not change the fact that conviction perseveres in the mission. Notice also, number six, the church stands together in hardship. The church stands together in hardship. Now, 
I have to say, this, as I was putting this together, this was maybe the one that, that kind of stuck me a little bit more than others. There's a lot here that, that sticks me, and I, I wish I had another four hours to, to work through this with you. Far too often, some of the adages that people have come up with, which annoy the snot out of me, to be honest, sorry for the crassness, things like, only in the church do we shoot our wounded. Things that separate us and divide us. Things that are not true, but often seem true. Guys, if we're shooting our wounded, we are not the church of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ unified. We are united. We are one body. We stand together. I want to encourage you, if you are a Christ follower, be painfully aware of any time the devil tempts you to sit in judgment of other believers and criticize the church. That doesn't mean don't be discerning. It doesn't mean you know we're going to ignore the difference between truth and falsehood. It doesn't mean we're going to not talk about it because we just want everybody to get along. That's garbage. We must speak truth. But we also need to not be people who are quick to bash our own family. Let's not sit around and bash Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer or somebody else. I don't care who it is that that you might have a particular issue with. Christians don't do that. If you have a problem with someone's teaching, then point out the teaching. You know, if you've been here, I have a very major issue with some of the false things being taught in some of our local churches. But this is not about bashing people. This is about setting truth before everyone and loving the body of Christ more than I love being right. Loving being right is pride. Standing for truth is love. Now, I did a lot of talking right there. That's not really the goal. The goal is to see it in the text. So take a look at verse 20. The church stands together in hardship. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Paul was left for dead, stoned and beaten, left for dead, dragged out of the city. And what happens? The church, rather than fleeing, rather than saying, I'm getting out of here before that happens to me, they gather around him. They restore him to strength. And because of his conviction, he goes back into the city. Now they do leave the next day. But notice at no point along the way do those who know the gospel stop proclaiming the gospel. That never happens. We don't see that. Persecution fuels mission. The more the devil opposes it, the more fired up the spirit in us gets to save dying people, to rescue the perishing. That's what we do. And when things go wrong, when things get hard, we come together. We support one another. Do you think everybody there liked Paul? I'm going to doubt it. It's not about whether you like the person in the chair next to you. We're socially distant, so it's probably somebody in your own household. Yeah, whatever. But the reality is it's not about liking. It's about loving, cherishing, valuing, saying one way or another, regardless of your itchy, scratchy personality, even if you're as huggable as a cactus, you belong to me and I belong to you and together we belong to Christ. And when it gets rough, we stand together. The church stands together in hardship. Seven, there is more to discipleship than conversion. 
There's more to discipleship than conversion. It's not enough for them to go and preach the gospel as evangelists and then walk away. Notice what happens. Despite the persecution, despite everything that has happened to them, they go back to strengthen the churches. Right? So verse 21, they're in Derby now. They've left Lister. They're in Derby. They preach the gospel in that city, won a large number of disciples. Then they make a, a, a circle back through. They go back to Lystra, back to Iconium, back to Pisidia and Antioch. This is not the Antioch they came from originally, but it's where they were preaching prior to, uh, to Iconium. People from Iconium and Antioch had come down here to persecute them in Lystra. But they go back. They go back for the express reason in verse 22 of strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. It needs more than just conversion. It's not a matter of praying a prayer so that I can have my fire insurance and say that I'm a Christian. I remember praying a prayer once when I was at vacation Bible school. Man, that's not it. Discipleship is deeper. Discipleship says, if I'm in with Christ, if I know that this is truth, I can't walk away from it. Any more than you can can have the best meal of your life and say, wow, that's awesome, and then never eat again. That doesn't work. Discipleship is more than just conversion. It starts there. My marriage is not about my wedding. It started there. But if it ended there, if that was it, I, I said I love you when we got married, honey. I'll let you know if I change my mind. I'm not going to have a good marriage. It's a daily thing. Discipleship, like marriage, is more than conversion. It has to be deeper than that. So they go back, they strengthen the believers, and they say, stay true. And they point out a very important thing in discipleship. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. There are very few books of the New Testament, very few letters from Paul, very few places that you're going to see it in any of the letters that don't mention the persecution of the church, that we will face hardship. Peter says Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should walk in His steps. What does that mean? That we should act like Jesus? Well, yes, but specifically in the passage what it means is that we should endure suffering like Jesus. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's not how we enter the kingdom of God. We enter the kingdom of God by by grace through faith. But on our road from here to heaven, on this pilgrim journey to the celestial city, we will face many hardships. If we don't go through the hardships, we don't get to the gate. We don't get to the city. There's more to discipleship than conversion. Number eight, the Lord governs His church through local leadership. The Lord governs His church through local leadership. A couple of parts here. This is the Lord's church. The church belongs to the Lord. I'm going to say it again. I hope I get more than one amen. This is the Lord's church. This is the Lord's church. He governs His church. And he governs his church through local leadership. Notice what we see. Verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. In the same way that they were sent out by the other leaders at at Syrian Antioch, they choose elders from among that local congregation. They don't bring in professionals. They're not bringing somebody from outside. They're bringing people here. They're appointing from among them elders, people who would lead them. He goes into detail in other areas uh, about what that means to shepherd God's flock. But what we need to see is that they appoint these elders in each church and they Commit them to the Lord with prayer and fasting because it's in the Lord they had put their trust. The Lord governs His church through local leadership. Number nine, those who go and those who send are partners in the mission. Those who go and those who send 
our partners in the mission. Gary mentioned partnership earlier. It's not just support, it is support. We know that missionary support is a spiritual ministry. But when we are engaged in missionary support, we are partners in the mission. Because those who go can't go if someone doesn't send them. Somebody has to foot the bill. Somebody has to be praying while they are doing the doing. Many would love to go and be on the front line, so to speak, in foreign missions or in cross-cultural missions as we call it today. But they can't. Their situation isn't right for that. God hasn't called them to that in this moment. Doesn't mean He won't later. Means He hasn't in this moment. So instead, we partner with those who go by sending them, supporting them financially, supporting them in prayer, putting our mark, our stamp, our benediction on them as we invest personally, emotionally, spiritually, fiscally in those who are doing the going. Those who go and those who send our partners in the mission. Notice they were sent at the beginning of verse 13 from Antioch. Notice what happens here, verse 24. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia when they preached the word in Perga. That's where they had that port city in Pamphylia. Then they went down to Atalia. Everywhere they go, they keep preaching the gospel, right? From Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch, Syrian Antioch this is, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. Now, why does he say that? Why does he point this out? Because this mission that they've completed wasn't just their mission. Your maps in your Bible will call this Paul's first missionary journey. And rightly so. It's the first journey Paul goes on as a missionary sent by the church. But if we were going to title it rightly, we would call it the church at Antioch's first missionary journey involving Paul. Because they are partners with him in it. They send him. He departs from there. They are the sending church. The Holy Spirit has moved them to do so. They are supporting this mission. And we'll see throughout the book of Acts later on, and even in the letters that Paul writes later, that all of the churches are supporting the work from the other churches. Building one another up, footing the bill so somebody else can go to do what my heart wants to see done. They're partners together in it. So in verse 24, they go back to Antioch because that's where it started. That's where they were committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. And on arriving there in verse 27, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This is part of being partners together and it leads us to our last point The church invests in the work as it invests in one another. The church invests in the work as it invests in one another. Verse 28, they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Having reported what took place to those who were their brothers and sisters in the blood, sweat, and tears. Notice they started with fasting Those people praying for them back home aren't throwing up a quick little mention now and then. They are diligently, passionately, intensely, fervently praying for this mission. And when they go back and they report, they stay with them because this is their family. They stay with their, for many days, for a long time. And as they are there with them, This kinship, what the Greek New Testament calls koinonia, this togetherness, this oneness, the unity and fellowship that they have, all of these words packed into that Greek term, they're in one accord, they're family. There's a love that they have for one another. They're invested, not just in the work, but in the people doing the work. 
as a church, this is why we see throughout the, the book of Acts, throughout the, the whole New Testament, this focus on the centrality of the local church in committed relationships. Because you can't have committed relationships with people you don't know, that you don't have some connection to, that you don't actually get to see. That's why so many feel so disconnected in the midst of this pandemic and all this social distancing and isolation. It's hard to feel connected. Take that principle and apply it in your mind to why local church membership is important. Additionally, this is why we at Real Life, not every church takes the same approach, but our philosophy toward missions is we limit the number of missionaries that we support. Why do we do that? Because I would rather spread out, if I've got $5, I would rather give $5 to one person than $1 to five people to be able to make this impact. Now, on top of that, if, we have, if we're supporting 20 different missions with 20 different people, with the number of folks that we have in our congregation, it's a lot harder to have a personal connection. But if you're serving through two or three or four on the front lines, you get to know each one of them personally. I want to encourage you to recognize that, that when we send people, when we support missionaries, the church has a budget for that, that we take from the general fund. And that's important. That's a standard. It's a base. And we take this, we, we never pass a plate here except for in a very uh, strange, extenuating circumstances. We've done it a few times. But we don't pass a plate to, to uh, collect donations we leave that between your conscience and God. But on the first Sunday of the month, we put out our mission offering. To, this week, it's the second Sunday. But we put that mission offering plate out in the entryway so that you can give in addition to what you might normally give specifically for missions. We could do it any number of different ways, but one of the reasons that we do that is so that you have a personal connection with that particular donation. When I give this money, I can pray about that money. Because I know this is going not to air conditioning or building. This is going to keep dying people from hell. That's my goal. That's why I would encourage you, in addition to whatever you give to your church, and there's no support for, you know, there's no support biblically to replacing your support for the local church with a parachurch organization. That's, that's not what we see biblically in the pattern. But that doesn't mean don't give to those parachurch organizations. I would encourage you to specifically and personally sponsor, especially our missionaries, for sure a missionary. Some of you have missionaries that you're connected with from other circles outside of our congregation. And that's great. That's wonderful. I have a cousin in Florida who runs a, uh, an international mission down there. It's not a part of our church, but he's a part of our family. And so it makes sense that I would pray for him, that I would support that ministry. Incidentally, pray for my cousin Mike. He's got uh, COVID-19. He's dealing with that right now. He and his wife both do. So please do pray for them if you think about them. Uh, Mike and Sandy are their names. Anyhow, anyway, as we're, as we're seeing this, the benefit of being able to support Suzanne personally Greg and Mary Ellen, personally. Keith and Heather, personally. Is there's an investment. Not just an investment financially, but an investment emotionally and spiritually. I'm not supporting the mission as much as I'm supporting the person in that mission. The work is for all of us. Our role might be different than the one who's on the front line, but when I put their face with it, when our hearts are engaged, it does more for me than it does for them. The church invests in the work as it invests in one another. Let me wrap this up. I'm, I'm way over where I wanted to be right now. but One of my favorite 90s cartoons was Pinky and the Brain. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you know who Pinky and the Brain are. I'll pray for the rest of you. So, Pinky and the Brain are laboratory mice whose genes have been spliced. Yes, it's true. One is a genius and the other is insane. And every night, Pinky 
who's insane, says to the brain, what do you want to do tonight, brain? And brain responds, same thing we do every night, Pinky, try to take over the world. So these two laboratory mice try to take over the world, and it's hilarious, and it's great social commentary as well. Do you realize that's the job of the church? Not to gain power and take over the world like like the brain because he's messed up. But can you imagine love taking over the world? Can you imagine a world where there are no headlines left to report the hatred and injustice because it's so filled with grace? with people who know Jesus Christ, who are moved by the Holy Spirit, who love one another, who are willing to sacrifice for somebody else's benefit with no gain to themselves. Can you imagine that world? I can because I can see it in Revelation 21. It won't happen until that time. But as long as there is one soul unsaved, one person on the road to hell, we have work to do. We must tell the world so i'm encouraging you right now today in response to what we see in acts 14 to pray earnestly lord send me send me out father i want to do what you want me to do and if you want me to go i'll go wherever you want me to go oh but i got a job i can't quit my job really If God is telling you He wants you to quit your job and go be a missionary, which do you think is more important? And do you really think your job could ever be a blessing to you when you're running away from God? Ask Jonah how that goes. But maybe He's not calling you. I would say, Lord, please send me if that's what you want me to do. I will uproot, I will do whatever it takes for me to be in your will. But for most of us, notice most of them stayed in Antioch and Paul and Barnabas went. For most of us, what God is calling us to do to participate in the mission that He has for us is to stay and to pray and to send, to support, to give money so that somebody else can go quit their job. Now, if you're doing that as a cop-out so you don't have to go, then you're missing the point. But if you're not doing it, then you better check where your heart is. John Piper said that there are three kinds of Christians when it comes to missions. Goers, senders, and disobedient. Which one are you? Now that you know, what will you do about it? I commend you to the hands of God. May His Spirit convict each one of us. Let's pray together.